Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is David Blitzer, the new owner of Real Salt Lake, as well as Crystal Palace, Ricardo Pepe's Augsburg, and several other teams in multiple sports. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including on-site coverage of every U.S. men's national team World Cup qualifier. That's grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. In segment one today, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the news in the soccer world. We'll have David Blitzer in segment two, but let's bring in Witty. How are you, my friend? Doing all right, sir. I'm actually, uh, David Blitzer is a really interesting uh, character in American soccer and in world soccer, so I'm glad that you had the chance to sit down with him. Yeah, he doesn't do a lot of interviews, by the way, and this is a guy who's part of the ownership of the Philadelphia 76ers, the New Jersey Devils. Really interesting guy, enjoyed talking to him for the first time, and his name has popped up in so much soccer-wise recently, uh, buying Real Salt Lake, being involved with Augsburg and the Ricardo Pepe $20 million transfer. So stick around and check out that interview, everyone. But let's start here with a little U.S. men's national team discussion. They got three qualifiers starting next Thursday, El Salvador, Canada, and Honduras. Big games for the United States as it tries to qualify for World Cup 2022. And I wanted to mention something to you. I just heard this today. We're we're recording this on Wednesday. I go to every single World Cup qualifier for my site, as you know. I may not be able to go to Canada. And depending on what happens in the next few days, there may be some fans for the U.S. that aren't allowed as well. It's kind of a fluid situation. But as of right now, I am told that even if you do all the right protocols and testing, you have a 50% chance of being randomly selected when you land in Toronto and you would have to do a two-day quarantine, which for me, unless I change my travel plans, would mean I would miss the game. Um, So I don't want that to happen. And I'm also hearing from a source who's aware of this stuff that Canada may even make it more strict in the coming days and maybe even take out the random and just say, you've got to do a quarantine and maybe have it be more than two days. So lots to learn in the next few days if you're like me in the media going to the game or if you're a fan wanting to go to this game. It's all due to Omicron, obviously. And um, what I would say, though, and I do have a spouse who knows uh, things about how to deal with COVID, a two-day quarantine is useless. Correct. I think that whole policy seems haphazard. Yeah, two-day quarantines don't do anything. So if they make it longer, I, you know, look, I understand wanting to protect your country, but you need it to be at least five days if you're going to do that. Uh, two days is ridiculous and sort of COVID theater. But um, we'll see how this goes. I'd like to be on site covering the game, but uh, I always try and remind myself, control what you can control, Grant, and I cannot control <laughs> international foreign policy on stuff like that. I want to bring up something, though, that's an interesting little mini trend we're seeing now with some U.S. men's national team players, specifically Paul Ariola and Kellen Acosta. And with Acosta, he was traded last week from the Colorado Rapids to LAFC. And you don't get a lot of honesty from athletes on things like this. On Twitter, he comes out, Acosta, and says he's not happy. 
and he feels like Colorado pushed him out. He said there was interest in him from teams abroad that he wanted to join over staying in MLS. And now you have Ariola, who's being desired by Club America, which appears to be the club he would like to go to from DC United, but reports that there are other MLS teams willing to pay big time Garber bucks <laughs> allocation money for Paul Ariola. And what appears to be happening here is that the MLS teams are incentivized more to trade for Garber Bucks inside MLS than to sell a player to a foreign team, even if the player wants to go, would prefer to go to the foreign team. And that stinks. Well, it did seem as though this was changing, right? And and Colorado, I think, made their first, you know, really major money sale when they sold Sam Vines to Belgium. And you kind of think that most clubs have kind of moved on from wanting to hold back the ambitions of their players and just say, go ahead, go ahead and move on to Europe if you want to. But I guess that seems to really only apply to players kind of under the age of 23 because these kind of middle of their career guys like Helen Acosta and Paul Ariola are perhaps not afforded that same opportunity. Now, you know, I I have heard with Paul Ariola there was a sell-on clause with Tijuana that you know might be part of the reason why they need to get a certain amount of money in order to make that worth their while. But I also understand if you're Paul Ariola, who's played in Mexico before, has ties to the country, why playing for the country's biggest club, arguably, I'm sure Chivas fans will be in my mentions, uh, is, is a huge opportunity. Um, and it is a bummer that, like, in some ways, you are holding back players from realizing their ambitions, right? If Kellen Acosta wants to go to Europe, if Paul Ariola wants to go to uh, wants to go to America, then he should be afforded the opportunity to. But at the same time, it's kind of always been the design of the MLS system, and why, in some ways, clubs have needed to further and further be incentivized to sell by keeping more of that money and being able to reinvest it in your salary budget. I always wonder in these conversations how far in the weeds we should get. If there's like someone listening in, you know, Zimbabwe who's like, wait, Garber Bucks? What does that mean? So basically, you get this pot of money that you can use to add to your salary budget, either to add on to salaries that go above the maximum salary or to buy down the budget charges of others. It's this extra pot of money that is a way of increasing in the salary cap um, and it basically it's a really valuable asset within MLS and so Paul Ariola who apparently could fetch as much as two million maybe even more million dollars in in this allocation money which would be a record transfer within MLS um, that's really valuable to DC United I can understand why you know you'd rather take that than whatever you got to split with Tijuana when you if you get it from Club America what are the chances that on the Levitard show they would allow you and Mike Ryan to talk about MLS allocation money rules <laughs> well I have to be honest I don't think even Mike Ryan, who is a massive soccer fan, could explain what that is. I, I think I might be the only person who could. And I have to be honest, I'd probably have to read the CBA or what they put online beforehand in order to really have a clear understanding. I have never understood why when, you know, fantasy sports are so popular, when, you know, everyone's an armchair GM now with, of, of American sports, and, you know, you, you go out on your social media like, oh, I want my club to sign this player or that player. We need a striker here. But, like, no one knows how much money you have. No one knows what the rules are. Like, I don't understand why you'd make it so Byzantine so as to make it inaccessible to your fans. Like, I think fans <laughs> really like following that stuff, and this system that is so complicated doesn't allow anyone to understand what it means which i might be the design of it i don't know we're definitely in the weeds now by the way just <laughs> <Damn>. <laughs> i'm taking out my scythe to like hack my machete to hack through the mls weeds 
But uh, I would say this also, just about Ariola in particular, but Acosta to an extent as well. There's U.S. national team fans that don't like these players, right? We know this is the case, especially with Ariola, and this shows, I think, that other clubs, Club America is a real club, by the way, that they have value, they see value in Paul Ariola, for example. And we've talked about this with Landon Donovan on the podcast about other players, Landon says, and coaches see the value of Paul Ariola. So I, I think we can stop having this discussion about does Paul Ariola suck? Because Paul Ariola not only does not suck, he brings value to the U.S. men's national team and to clubs. And it would appear as though every coach who's ever coached him is like, we need some Ariolas in the team. <laughs> like, like, and that's, and that's the thing that I think a lot of fans probably don't understand about national team football. And I, I think about this as well with like England at the Euros, for instance, when like, you know, Gareth Southgate would, wouldn't play Jack Grealish or wouldn't play Jaden Sancho. And it's like, just stick the most talented group of players on it. Let them go be talented. And like, even though it's a national team and you have a, in some ways unlimited pool of players to pick from, you still are trying to build a team. It's not just about throw the most talented guys out there. It's, well, can we construct an 11 that makes sense together? And so Paul Ariola is one of those guys that coaches, you know, from European backgrounds, from South American backgrounds, from American backgrounds, all seem to value. I completely agree with you. I, I think that I'm, I'm working on a theory where U.S. men's national team fans like players who are in MLS for the first 18 months that they're in MLS. And if they haven't moved to Europe by then, then they're tired of them. Like if they're regularly playing in MLS for more than 18 months, it's, well, go to Europe. Otherwise, I'm done with you. And I, I, I really do think that like a lot of fans is like, well, if they're called into the U.S. men's national team pool and they have an MLS club next to their name, that the fans aren't really that excited about seeing them. I think we're, by the way, on Thursday or Friday, whenever the roster gets announced, going to see several MLS players on on this roster despite the league not being in season that's why they've been in training camp recently we just had jordan morris as an interview guest on the last episode which you should check out i do want to ask you about a couple of wild things in england here today we're recording on wednesday spurs somehow wins at the death 3-2 at leicester stephen bergwine deep in stoppage time turns a loss into a win what happened here? <laughs> it was absolute madness is what happened here. It was a bonkers game in the full 90 minutes uh, because you have Tottenham who created a ton of chances in the first half. Somehow found themselves behind. They got to level at halftime. Then Leicester not only scored, but probably should have had a third when Harvey Barnes was in on goal. Could have slid it across a penalty area to Adam Lookman. And he didn't. He shot. His shot was saved. And so... You know, Leicester, they look like they're 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 going to win this game. They're going to move into the top half, and they're in, they're in good position. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Spurs score a goal with like 94-40 on the clock and a minimum of five minutes to be added on. And then I guess there was some added on time to add it on time. And then Spurs went and got the winner. It was incredible. And, you know, a simple long ball played up to Matt Doherty, who then chests it down. Bergvine smashes it home. And all of a sudden, you have Spurs. And this is a really big result. They had their North London Derby canceled at the weekend. So we were kind of going to see that six-pointer, which right now is four versus five for that final Champions League position. And so now, without that head-to-head -head and kind of understanding where the picture is, it's back to seeing how these two teams stack up and their results against other teams. And if you're Arsenal right now, or even Manchester United, who get a 
big midweek win against Brentford that we'll talk about in a second, uh, they would certainly would have hoped that Leicester would hold on to a win over Spurs, a team that they're battling out with a top four for. Uh, and you look at West Ham as well. So yeah, I mean, it's a massive result for Spurs, who I think are the team best positioned to finish in the top four just because of their manager. Um, but it's a huge turnaround win for them. Yeah, just incredible. I mean, I, I really, I mean, it, at this point, you you can't really argue with Antonio Conte and, and how he gets results where there weren't results right before he got there. It, it's absolutely incredible. And it's a complete sort of change of attitude right now about everything going on at Tottenham. And you have to feel like they're going to be top four. They got a couple of games in hand and who knows? I mean, this is a team that if they use the games in hand, well, could suddenly be in second place or at least close mm-hmm. to it. Yeah, especially with the way that Chelsea are dropping points. They they, they they drop points on Tuesday against Brighton. So yeah, I mean, Spurs can be right back in and amongst it. And for me, you know, it's interesting because I think Antonio Conte's, you know, one of his biggest reputations is that he goes into a club and then complains that he doesn't have enough money to spend. Like, he's always complaining. And yet, last year with Inter, when they got handed, you know, uh, when he was dealt a hand where, you know, the owners basically said, this is a squad you're, you're, you're coaching one way or another, and it's why he left. But then he won the league with that group of players, because he's really good at coaching up the players who exist and getting the most out of them, and moving Christian Eriksen from an advanced role to a deep-lying role, you know, taking a player like Matt Doherty, who couldn't play even under his former club coach at Wolves and, and Nuno, uh, and, and he's played some, and, and made a real impact in today's game and moving Ben Davies into the back line. Like he does a bunch of different things that bring the most out of the players that are there. And that he's going to continue to ask for more players, uh, which I imagine he will at Spurs. Um, but he is just, he's a, he's an incredible coach um, and is worth, I guess, every headache that he might give club chairman. So you mentioned Manchester United, they get a win against Brentford, but the thing that most people are probably going to be talking about is Cristiano Ronaldo's hissy fit upon being subbed in this game. Ralph Rangnick showing he's got maybe a little bit of control here. The sub comes on and scores a goal, by the way. So take that, Ronaldo. <laughs> yeah, Marcus Rashford comes on and, and, and scores in his place. It's It's been weird because... The last so I thought United were pretty good over the seventy first seventy five minutes of the game against Villa, and then they were completely blown away and ended up drawing that one two two. And then tonight we're pretty dreadful in the first half against Bradford, and then somehow found themselves three 0 ahead. I have found the Ralph Rangnick era incredibly confusing and bizarre. Like because United aren't playing well, but they are they also aren't really getting run off the park. They're not really executing a typical Red Bull identity, but they're also not the same team that they were under Ole, under Ole. I have no idea what to make of this Manchester United team, but look, in a way, winning Brentford is, I think, going to be pretty impressive this season, given the caliber of games that they've given to, you know, big teams this season. But, you know, I, I don't get what they're, I don't get kind of what their end game is here. If they're even competitors to do well in the Champions League, do well in the race for the top four, what their future is. But, you know, a, a win away from home against Brentford is decent. And I also, like you said, you're starting to hear some noises. Obviously, Ronaldo getting pulled off today. And then I saw a report as well today that apparently Ralph Ranić has gone to the Manchester United board and started to pick out players that he wants to get rid of. And it's actually mainly his English defense and his back line that he's not terribly uh, into. Harry Maguire started the game from the bench today, which is rare for him at Manchester United. So I, I don't, I, I, it's, that's a situation that I have a really hard time reading. I'm hoping to see after your rant the other day, a UK media story crediting Chris Armas for the win. <laughs> well, yeah. 
it's one of those things where like you know it's it's only uh, those stories only get written when things are bad no one's gonna write the story chris armis leading the tactical revolution at manchester united I, I saw him on the bench today wearing airpods and i'm like go on chris I mean, we, we, we gotta find out what he's listening to on the airpods right because he's always wearing the he's AirPods. always wearing airpods <laughs> <laughs> oh shoot uh let's talk africa cup of nations because it's been a lot of fun the last few days after a fairly slow start if we're being honest lots of nil nils and one nils uh to start this tournament but ghana is out which in a 24 team tournament is kind of hard for a team of ghana's stature to do but they've done it and uh it got to the point where well, they lost to Comoros 3-2. Comoros had never scored a goal in the history of the Africa Cup of Nations until this game. And they get three against Ghana. Now, Ghana is not the same Ghana that bedeviled the United States at World Cups 2006 and 2010 before the U.S. finally beat them in 2014. That said, Ghana is still alive in World Cup qualifying, by the way, which is worth pointing out. Um but to lose and go out to Comoros, and then I saw like the minister, minister of the interior in Ghana released a formal press release wanting answers about Ghana's performance at the Africa Cup of Nations. And it hit me, Chris, that um, you know FIFA doesn't like it when the government gets involved with the national teams and, and tends to threaten governments that do that. But then I was going to make a point about that on Twitter, and I realized that as recently as 2019, the United States president went after the United States women's team during the World Cup. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> yes, I do, unfortunately. So I was about to say, what a, what a wacky situation in Ghana. Well, actually, <laughs> we've seen that in our own country not too long ago. So I ended up not tweeting that. Um, but still a fascinating story in part because these like the way World Cup qualifying works in Africa, they've got 10 teams left and there's going to be five home and home two game series in which that determines who makes it to the World Cup with their five spots from Africa. And that's crazy for one thing, but also now like that's going to be happening in March, right after the Africa Cup of Nations. And so if you're Ghana, do you get rid of your coach now, right before the March playoffs, and bring in some entirely new person? Or do you keep him? He certainly said that he, it's this, is he Serbian or something? Milovan Rat, Radovic? I should know the guy's name. But like, like he, he certainly was trying to make a case that he should keep his job. But that's not going to be his call. But um, it's, it's kind of a wild situation. And then on Thursday, we're coming out Thursday morning with this podcast, two simultaneous fascinating games. You've got Ivory Coast against Algeria. So two heavyweights. Algeria is the defending champion. Algeria, having lost to Equatorial Guinea somehow, is in danger of going out in the group stage. And at the same time, you've got the two Cinderella's Sierra Leone with Kai Kamara, MLS legend, and Equatorial Guinea are playing in the other game. And so all four teams have a chance to, to be around and advance to the, the knockout stage. But it, it should be a really fun 
morning. I just hope I, I can watch the games on BN, which has handled this tournament pretty horrifically so far. <laughs> Um, well, I, I, to me, the, the the pick out of what you just talked about there is Ghana, uh, just because uh, you mentioned they are no longer the team that you fear as a U.S. men's national team fan. They will forever be that team that I fear as a U.S. men's national team fan. <laughs> I could be 80 years old and Ghana can no longer be a country and I'd still fear them in, 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 in a World Cup match. Uh, just because, you know, they have that pedigree and they've played so many big games with the U.S. But really for me, it's, you know, those teams were pretty loaded with talent, talent that were playing abroad. And it seems like right now, and I'm, I'm looking through kind of their, their player pool, it's really a team that's going through a transitional period where they have a lot of guys who started including in these AFCON matches uh, that were teenagers, that were young, that were inexperienced. Um, you know, guys like Kamaldeen Suleimana, who's at Ren right now, uh, who could potentially obviously grow into a big player at 19 years old. But, you know, right now, that's a huge burden to place on them. You're still, you know, chucking the IU brothers out there. You know, I've been watching Andre and Jordan IU at Swansea for Ghana for as long as I can remember. Uh, so it, it's a lot of guys and it's, it's a lot on Thomas Partey as well. And you look at their squad and it's like, I don't know. Maybe this is, this isn't the team that I remember. It should be enough to succeed in Africa against Comoros, but uh, you know, I think there's a reason why you know it's not been the best era of results for them. It's because their their squad doesn't really look like it's replenished in the way like they did when they should have been in Uruguay to get to a World Cup semifinal in 2010. Michael Essien isn't walking through that door. No, he is not. <laughs> Asamoah Gyan isn't walking through that door. Asamoah Gian, man. I I mean, he, he could be 74 years old and he will score against the United States of America. I'm still so bitter about that whole 2010 ending because the U.S. was dominating that game, was so much more fit than Ghana in extra time, and that goal just came out of nowhere that Gian yeah. scored. No, well, And also, I mean, you think about how, bad, how diabolical the U.S. were in the first half to the point where they made a first half sub like a tactical sub for Ricardo <sighs> Clark coming off. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of memories. I and I wonder if we should do like a like a rewatch of US World Cup qualifying <laughs> matches and 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 break them down because uh, like I have distinct memories about like USA 2 Slovenia 2. Like it, it's it's bizarre that I remember these things this well. Oh, you don't want to get me going. I was in the freaking stadium, man. Like every one of those games, I remember every single moment. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Kevin Prince Boateng scoring early for Ghana against the United States. But then a nice little comeback, you know. Clint Dempsey earns a penalty, Landon converts, and I just felt like the U.S. was going to win that game. Would have set up a quarterfinal against Uruguay. Good team, but not invincible by any means. And then U.S. could have been in a World Cup semifinal. I, I really thought that was the year that things were shaping up well for the U.S. By the way, I'm trying to get Bob Bradley on the podcast. Think I should ask him about that? <laughs> I, I might leave that one behind, Grant. <laughs> Would you follow up with a question one. about the 2011 Gold Cup final? Or, <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Bob Bradley will tell you, and, and I think he makes a good case, and I realize he you know, isn't an unbiased observer, but he thinks that was one of the great continental finals of all time. And I actually don't disagree with him on that. He thought both teams went for it. And I think it sticks in his craw that that was the game he went out on because he feels like that was a, just an amazing game as opposed to any sort of screw up by the U.S. But yeah, that we'll have to save that one for the rewatchables, I guess, for the 2011 <laughs> Gold Cup final. But even Michael Cox... The tactics analyst 
for the athletic calls that one of the great continental finals of all time i think he did a, a wonderful piece on it when it happened but anyway we we've digressed we're back in the weeds this has been a very weedsy <laughs> episode but but a very fun weedsy episode very much enjoyed talking to you thanks so much chris thanks grant now here's my interview with david blitzer our guest now is david blitzer He's a senior executive at the Blackstone Group and has an ownership stake in several sports teams, including the Philadelphia 76ers, the New Jersey Devils, Crystal Palace, FC Augsburg, and as of last week, MLS's Real Salt Lake. David, congratulations on RSL and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks a lot, Grant. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm certainly very excited with the uh, the latest investment in uh, in Real Salt Lake. Great. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting story. I mean, just to start, how far back does your interest in MLS go, and how long have you known the commissioner, Don Garber? Well, wow. So my interest in the sport, right? We can come back to the the investment in the sport. My invest, my interest in the sport goes back to you know to whatever my first memories are. So I played soccer growing up. I came from a pretty soccer heavy area, you know, back in the. 80s uh, into the 90s, you know, New Jersey still is, but was a pretty massive hotbed of uh, of soccer talent. Unfortunately, I wasn't good enough to compete with some of those players as they continued their journeys past high school. But so I always loved the sport, always played the sport, always followed the sport, but really more international from that perspective. I mean, that said, I had season tickets back when the Cosmos, you know, were playing at the Meadowlands. Yeah, you know, 76, 77, 78 ish, etc. So I was constantly going to those kinds of games. Fast forward a little bit. I lived in London from uh, late 2001 till late 2011. Okay. So while I had an interest, I certainly, again, was following the big teams and I was certainly following the U.S. national team, et cetera, you know, being able to be, I was walking distance from Stanford Bridge where I lived. And so, you know, to be able to go and watch, you know, premiership soccer on a weekly basis, literally was pretty powerful. And then um, I'd see, I'd, I'd watch other countries as well. I'd go over and I'd see games in, you know, in Spain or in, you know, Italy and frankly, even some other countries, because it would just be a fun thing to do. Go to Copenhagen for the weekend and, you know, go watch FC Copenhagen. And then obviously we had the, the uh, you know, I've been all the Euros, but then having the World Cup in Germany in 2006. But um, I can't even tell you how many games I probably went to in the 06 World Cup, maybe like 25 kind of thing. <laughs> So anyway, so so the interest just kept building, I guess, in that sense, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And then when I moved back in 2011 to the U.S., I just made my first investment in in sports, and that was in the um, in the NBA. But it was logical, or or I was already thinking, like, hey, what about MLS? What about soccer? You know, in the U.S. And uh, one of my earlier meetings was having somebody set me up with Don Garber. And so I met Don for the first time in 2012 and continued to dialogue with Don for whatever, nine, nine plus years and had looked at different situations along that route, as you probably know better than I do, investing in an MLS team back in 2012 and 2013 <laughs> versus 2021-22 is a very, very different proposition, right? Don and his management team and frankly, a lot of the ownership groups They've done a phenomenal job in growing the league. There's no question, right? So I sort of followed that journey, had some fits and starts in terms of looking at some specific things, um, but really was just waiting for the right opportunity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the right opportunity presented itself, you know, relatively recently with Real Salt Lake. And so while I continued to, as you mentioned, invest in some other European clubs, the interest was there in the MLS. It was just finding the uh, the right situation. So 
why Salt Lake? Just because it was available or or like, is there any other reason? Well, there's a lot of reasons. I guess we'll hit on them. I mean, but to start with, you can't buy something that's not for sale, right? Mm-hmm. So you and I could say like, hey, we want to go invest in or buy ticket. Doesn't matter, right? And if it's not for sale, okay, like we could talk about it. But so look, I'd say, um, first off, I grew up going to Utah. You know, I love mm-hmm. to ski and it's not that unique, but you know, I was somebody who'd go out and, and ski in Utah, you know, pretty much every year, even more than once a year in, in, in many cases. And, and it's an amazing state in Salt Lake and its surrounding areas. It's an amazing community. I think that's um, clear to many. Uh, it should be clear to everyone. Um, but, uh, but some people haven't visited yet, right? Um, but no, look, so it was for sale. As you well know, the MLS was looking for a new ownership group for the, for the team. Okay, mm-hmm. So it starts in that there's at least something to talk about something for Don and I to engage on again. But for me, again, having engaged on a variety of other situations and dynamics, what really came together here for me was my partner, right? And so doing this with with Ryan Smith and SEG just felt like, you know, it's one of those things where things come together. I call it kind of serendipity in a, in a sense. Um, and so having Ryan as, as, as my partner and I as Ryan's partner made a lot of sense for both of us. But the market's a great market. I mean, I think I said this at the press conference, you probably heard it, you know, a lot of people call, you know, Utah and and Salt Lake City, you know, like a hidden jewel. I don't think it's really hidden anymore, right? It's a jewel of a market. And I'm also a big believer, and I'm sure we'll hit on this a little bit more later, but I'm a huge believer in the the academy. And I still think the best way, doesn't matter what country you're in, the best thing you can do is identify talent at a young age and develop that talent over a number of years. And, you know, the, the Real Salt Lake Academy system is amazing. Um, I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't have the exact stats, but we must be in the top two or three of, of number of our players in our in our first team that come from, uh, that are homegrown and come through our academy system. And there's many, many, many more that we're super excited about on, on the way. So so you have the infrastructure and the academy system. You have this market that that is, A, producing really, really interesting talent, but it's just a great market and growing, right? So again, you'll see this area and, and the communities you know, five years from now versus today will we'll be even oh, obviously a lot bigger. The growth is is incredible. And the innovation, and again, you know, there's no one who's more of an innovator than Ryan. You know, he kind of typifies the amazing things that are going on in, in technology and innovation in Utah, right? So it all just came together um, in that sense and, and really happy to, to be able to get it done. How would you describe your style as a sports team owner? How involved are you? Look, I... There's lots of different types and we all try to like uh, pigeonhole dynamics. Look, I mean, every situation is different, but I would say big picture. Um, I'm not a, I'm not a metal, you know what I mean? Like I'm here to help. Okay. So if our director of football or our CEO or our head of whatever, the Academy system or this, that, they want to talk about something like I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm here to, to help. But we, we, my mantra, both in my, uh, investing business, as well as in the sports business, has been you know revolved around finding great situations, great companies, great teams, et cetera, but, but hiring excellent people and empowering them to do their jobs. Okay. So I would say in that sense, I'm really happy to have be lucky and have a lot of great management teams that, that, that do their jobs. And I'm, and I'm there, we create governance structures, right, um, which I do think are important. And it's really, where can we help? Mm-hmm. You know, and obviously you can help in a lot of different ways, 
but I'm not trying to, you know, call down and say, you need to go get this player or you need to, and that's not what I should be doing. I'm not the expert in that. I'll have an opinion if somebody calls me or if we're sitting down to talk about, Hey, you know, preseason, let's look at how the team's coming together. What do we need? Do we need another, you know, kind of left back or do we need a right winger or in basketball, do we need a point guard or in hockey, do we need a goalie or, you know, obviously I can, I'll be in some of those key conversations, but again, not in a, you know, we should let the professionals do, do their jobs really well. Do you think MLS as a league should spend more money on players? And do you see Real Salt Lake spending more on players under the new ownership? Look, I don't, I don't know yet is the answer to the first question, right? So I'm still learning about all the nuances, not just of the MLS, but how the MLS fits into the global football soccer ecosystem, right? Yeah. And that's changed even again, as I've watched the MLS, particularly during this kind of nine-year period of being back in America. I mean, the MLS in 2022 is very different than the MLS in, in 2012. And again, I think that's testament to uh, the management team and Don and, and, and frankly, the teams themselves and, and, and the ownership groups. Um, and I'm, again, I'm early on my journey. And so I don't, I'm not going to opine today on what I think they should do with some of the rules or spending more money on this or more. I don't know yet is really the answer, right? As it relates to Real Salt Lake, again, let's start with the best thing one can do is, is identify and develop talent themselves. That's a competitive advantage, okay? And so I, I love that Real has that as sort of a mantra and has, you know, from really day one, as, as I see it. Um, but that's not everything, right? And you and I both know that a team needs to be really balanced and culture is incredibly important. And frankly, it's interesting because as you know, we're really excited about the fact that Pablo, you know, extended, um, you know, his contract in, in Real Salt Lake and having spent, you know, a, a nice amount of time with, with Pablo, A, I'm very thankful for that and happy about that. But also he and I talk about culture a lot, like a bunch of our conversations have really just been around culture of the team, culture of the organization, what he, what he brings to bear, what the organization needs to do to support that, et cetera. And so it's kind of what fits, right? It's not just like, let's line up the 11 best players in you know, the world and put them on a team kind of thing. So do I think investing in the team is, is relevant? Of course I do, right? But I don't know exactly where those best investments will be made yet, but, but certainly Ryan and I would take a view that as we learn um, you know, our goal is to have an incredibly uh, high quality product on, you know, on the pitch and, and more broadly just across the organization. But I think it's a great organization and hopefully we can help and, and add value to that as it goes. But I don't have specific great answers for you yet. It's just too early. You said publicly that you would like to bring the NWSL's Utah Royals back as a team under your ownership in Salt Lake. How soon could that be? Well, I think there's a difference between um, having that um, knowing that it's going to happen, right? Because, you know, there's contractual things that just need to occur. And then there's when would it start, right? right? Because, you know, you need real lead times to get, you know, the team back, et cetera. So look, big picture, I think Ryan and I've said, it's, we, we feel like it's when, not if, it is clearly our intention um, to bring uh, an NWSL team back to, uh, to this marketplace. We're excited about it. Like as part of the overall transaction, that was something that had us very excited um, and we intend to do that, but we certainly have some T's to cross and some things to get through. So I don't know. My, my gut is in terms of playing, you're looking at probably 24. Or I guess there could be some shot that it's 23, but probably, you know, 24. I, again, just don't know. You're part of the Crystal Palace ownership group. 
How would you describe what that experience has been like? You spent a lot of time living over there. A lot of fun and a lot of stress. So as, <laughs> as I assume your, 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 your fans and your, and your listeners understand the difference between the MLS and basically every other soccer league in the world. Um, and so this little thing called relegation is, is just not such a little thing, right? It's kind of a real thing. And look, I, I was lucky and I met Steve Parrish and I don't know if you know the story, but you, you should all, you should, and folks should watch when Eagles dare. Okay. When okay. Eagles dare is, is an amazing five part series that kind of starts with the history of the team as it had gone into administration and four local fans bought the team out of administration, got their freehold on their stadium back from the banks and that's how when Eagles there sort of starts and it takes it through, because as I think you probably also know, when, when, when a team goes into administration, the league's docked them points. Right. So here was a team that when they bought this team, these fans, right, from growing up when they were four or five years old, got together and to buy this team out of administration back in, I might have it wrong, but I think it was 2010, um, they came very close to, to moving down to League One because of right. the penalty on, on the points deduction. And the good news is they... On the last game of the season, they salvaged staying up in the championship. Literally, last game of the season. Um, and then from there, it shows the team as it grew to be promoted from the championship to the premiership, which is when I was introduced to Steve Parrish, who was looking for some partners who could work with him and invest in the team as it had really just it had been up in the premiership. I think I probably met Steve the first year it was up in a premiership or maybe right at the end of the, the first year it had been up in a premiership. And we had been debating, we had been looking at investing in a team in England and we had been debating, do you buy a championship team and put a bunch of capital into the championship team and try to get it up? We ultimately concluded, particularly for this team, meaning Crystal Palace, that um, we would rather invest in Crystal Palace being in a premiership and invest capital to keep it up rather than just try to write um, get promoted. But look, it's a stressful dynamic. And we certainly have had seasons where we're very, very worried about relegation, you know, deep into the season. Um, and, and the good news is um, Palace has stayed up for, you know, I guess for me, seven seasons, it might be one more um, before, before I got involved. But um, so, so definitely some stress, um, a lot of fun, right? I mean, a football's fun. Um, London's fun. Palace fans, I don't know if you've ever been to Selhurst Park, but it's incredible. The atmosphere is absolutely electric. Um, so, I, yeah, it's, it's been great. Um, and as you probably know, a bit of a new chapter in Palace, really, this, this summer, um, with Roy retiring um, and, and Patrick Vieira coming in as, as the new manager, who's just absolutely fantastic, although it's a little strange sometimes, right? I mean, you idolize somebody as a player. Right. And, and, and then to your manager. And it's like, oh, I, I just think, I think about him as a player and, and how amazing he is, but he's actually equally uh, amazing person. Um, and, and as a manager, couldn't, couldn't be happier with Patrick. But as you know, you know, we really went for bringing in younger talent to, again, develop over the years. Um, and we've gone from being one of the, if not the oldest, one of the oldest uh, teams in the premiership, just age-wise on the, on the pitch to, if not the youngest, certainly one of, one of the youngest and that's a fun journey to watch uh that's still early in its you know in its change i enjoy getting to know patrick Vieira when he was the coach at new york city just a really fascinating guy i do need to ask about augsburg here because you're also part of the ownership group of augsburg in germany yeah. that club just broke its transfer spending record to acquire the u.s forward ricardo pepe I know there's been some speculation that you played a role in that transfer. Is that accurate? Is there a story there? And it depends on your definition of role. Again, 
I mean, like, so I partnered with a gentleman named Klaus Hoffman, um, who, uh, who owns uh, Augsburg. And he was looking for a partner. And we were introduced. I actually had known Klaus going back a lot of years from our, from our business careers. Um, so I'd actually got you know, Klaus back when I was, when I was living in, in, in London. Um, but we hadn't seen each other in a long time and um, sort of got reconnected, I guess is the right word. And, and he was looking for a partner that, again, would come and he runs the team. It's similar to like Palace. Steve Parrish runs the team, right? He's my partner on the investment side, but he runs it. Same. I'm a partner with Klaus. Like Klaus runs the team. And so did I talk to Klaus about the transfer? Sure. It was the biggest transfer fee ever, right? I'm going to I'm gonna talk with him about it, but I wouldn't want to you know, put myself out there as having been like a, a game changer. Like Klaus had a really good idea and his football you know, personnel, and I was supportive, uh, highly supportive of the move. I asked Don Garber this question on my podcast when he came on recently. We're not even a year removed from the European Super League and its quick flame out. Do you think the current economic model at the top of European soccer is sustainable? And do you think MLS, with its single entity model and its lack of relegation, is in any position to close the gap with the top European leagues from a financial perspective as a result of that? There's a lot in there, Grant. And again, some I have a view on and some, like again, I'm a little early to figure out. But look, I'd say the existing structure of let's talk Europe for the sake of argument of the European leagues, I think works great. I don't, I don't really see any reason to change the structure of any league in Europe. Okay. That doesn't mean there aren't little things on the margin, you know what I'm saying? But like, you know, maybe making some of the media money, you know, spread out a little bit more, what have you, but like the structure of those leagues and how they are operating and how they work um, as entities in their own country, but obviously come together across European football, um, Europa Champions League, and you know others like, and and then the national teams like it works. Like I don't I don't know why you want to change something that completely works, um, personal. So yeah, I think it works, and I I don't see changes or big changes um, from my perspective uh, as it relates to the structure of of, of European leagues, etc. MLS, look, I mean, again, I think Don and and the team they've done a great job. Like, again, I go back and look at where they were relative to the, to the world, let's call it, in 2012, and where we are relative to the world in, in 2022, and it's a lot closer, right? There's no question. I mean, we could debate how much closer and, you know, et cetera, but, like, clearly that gap has been and been closed. And, and, like, I like to bet on America. Like, betting on the U.S. seems like a pretty good idea, right? And so um, do I think the talent is going to continue to grow and grow and grow in the U.S.? Absolutely. Um, I'm not sitting here going to make predictions of, I think the MLS will overtake the premiership in 2030. You know, like, I don't know. But do I think it's going to continue to get better? And do I think that gap is going to continue to, you know, constrict? Yeah, I do. And and again, you can just see it, not even in the 10 years. Think about the last three, four years and some of the talents that I'm going in both directions, by the way. Um, But, you know, I mean, Pepe is a great example. Um, And there's plenty more, but just, you know, from the last week or so, um, in terms of the value that is ascribed to him, regardless of what you think, right? Um, he's an immensely talented young player. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, um, as just a fan, so excited. I mean, watching these qualifying U.S. You know, national team games and watching him come up and watching what he did at his age and the pressure. Um, he's an extraordinary young man. So I'll be, I'll be just as a fan interested in watching his, his journey and many others. But it's a fun one to talk about, you know, over the last couple of weeks. David Blitzer is a senior executive at the Blackstone Group and part of the ownership groups of several sports teams, including most recently Real Salt Lake. David, thanks for coming on the show. 
Thanks so much, Grant. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank David Blitzer, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.